If you have your Bibles, we've waited a long time to say Romans 16. This is considered Paul's magnum opus. That's what the book of Romans is. This means it's his greatest work from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you. But what an amazing letter to these people. What it has covered. Remember how it started? Chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God, brought to be the bearer of this gospel. Remember looking back into the first chapter, the verse that we all know, we could quote it from memory. But it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's what this whole letter has been about. Isn't it the gospel? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is written, or for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So fide. Paul started there a long, long time ago in our study. That's where we started at. We've covered so much. And now we finish it. I hope this letter to the Romans has meant something to you. I hope it has changed your life. Because this is the weightiest, deepest theological letter that is penned in the pages of Scripture, complete from start to finish. And now Paul begins to wind this down. And if you remember how we ended um, <clears throat> last time we met, we talked about how Paul was wanting to come and visit those in Rome, how he longed to be with them, but he had something he had to do first. He had to um, take the contributions some, from some of the Gentile uh, areas and, and bring those contributions to the church in Jerusalem, those who were poor and struggling. That's where we left off, that Paul had a heart to see these people, the people that meant so much to him. And in verse or chapter 16, we begin to see Paul, as he winds this letter down, he begins to put a personal touch on it. These are some people that have meant something to him, that have helped him in his ministry elsewhere. Um, and he begins to close this out by some personal greetings. Because... Paul knows the importance of these people and everyone there, but he makes mention of some specifically. Let's start in verse 1 and just work through this last chapter. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, whom for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet, and there's some names in here, so just bear with me. Epanatus. My beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia, 
Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who were in Christ before me. Greet Ampletius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachius, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Trypania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlygon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philagus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, Paul begins to turn. Listen to his heart. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattery speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. Uh-oh, did you catch that? Greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets Aristus, the city treasurer, greets you. Cortus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to Him, who is able to establish you according to my gospel, in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. But now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this day. Lord, when we begin to think about the Incarnation, when we begin to think of what it means, the miracle of that, Lord, it overwhelms us. Lord, that you would come and humble yourself and lower yourself, God, to take on the form of a man. And you would humble yourself even to death, death on a cross. But you had to come first. You had to be born. You had to live the perfect life so that we could have the righteousness that you would impute to us. Lord, that you came to save your people from their sins. We thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for this letter to the Romans. Lord, we thank you for what it's meant to our lives, our church. And Lord, as we close today, 
We ask that you would give us instruction and wisdom. And Lord, we would see the truth in your word. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Paul begins to list certain people by name. And the first one we see is Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, which is at Chintria. And he encourages people to welcome her. He encourages those who are around her to welcome her and to keep her uh, encouraged. And in any way she needs help, in the, any form of uh, what she's doing in the church, any form of helping that she's doing for the church or for those people, he is asking and he is he's instructing those around her because she's been so instrumental in, this, in the church there that he mentions that she has done so many good things, that she's been such a, a faithful servant of God, willing to do anything, just being a, a servant, a servant heart, a servant's heart. And Paul begins to call her out by name and says, listen, help her. Receive her. She's been a helper of the church, but she's also been a helper of me. Somewhere in my ministry, she has helped me help her. And let's go back to everything we've talked about so far. Prefer one another. Brotherly love. Paul's coming to the end of this letter. And he says, listen, this lady has done so much good. She's been so faithful. She's helped me. Help her. The ways are tough, right? Times are hard. Help her. Don't let her get discouraged. You be there for her and you help her. He goes down into verse 3 and we see a Prisca and Aquila. Now, if you know, if you've ever heard that, you'll see it a little bit of a, a different variant in the, in the book of Acts where it's, it's written out a little bit further as Priscilla and Aquila. These were a couple. These were a, this was a married couple that helped Paul out. They were originally in Rome. And then what happened was that Claudius in Rome gave a decree that the Jews would have to leave Rome. And then they would find each other in Corinth. So when Paul goes to speak to the people in Corinth, he finds Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila, and he becomes friends with them. And, and they begin to do things in the ministry together. And then these two people, this couple, would then follow, follow Paul from Corinth, the church of Corinth. They would be following Paul to the church of Ephesus, and they would continue to help Paul there. They would take people in. You've, if you read the book of Corinthians there, you'll see a man that's mentioned, uh, especially starting right out in the introduction, a man named Apollos. who Apollos did uh, ministry for the Lord. And these people, Prisca and Aquila, this couple, brought Apollos in and helped him, helped guide him, helped him along the way when he was new in faith. This couple was helping in the ministry of God. And he is mentioning these people because they have meant so much to him. Look what it goes on to say in verse 4. Who for my life risked their own necks. That these people love the gospel. They love Paul. They love Christ. That they would be willing to give up their life if necessary. They have stuck out their neck for Paul. And Paul brings them to remembrance. He says, greet them, because now they would go back after being in Ephesus. They would go back to Rome. Now at this time, they're back in Rome. And Paul is reflecting on all the times they've been there, all the help they've been, even risking their necks and their lives for him. Paul says, greet them. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be with them, help them, encourage them. 
also greet the church that's in their house. They would meet and have church in their house. These are important people to Paul. They were also fellow tent makers with Paul. Paul, to earn money in his ministry. Paul was a tent maker. And so was a Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila. They were fellow tent makers with Paul. Can you look and think about people that's just been with you through thick and thin in your walk with Christ? Doesn't it do something to you? Isn't there a bonding there? But you know, they're a phone call away, a text away. When everybody else is leaving, they'll be the ones sticking up for you. They'll be the ones going with you. They'll be there. This is how Paul is ending this. If all of his ministry, if all the hardships, if everything, he goes into a personal nature. I remember everything we've done. You've been with me. Thank you. Greet them. Tell them thank you. Tell them I miss them. We've been through so much together. You can see the heart of Paul as this letter is winding down. He goes on to mention uh, this man in verse 5. Epanetus, probably nowhere near how you say that, but it sounded good. He was the first convert to Christ from Asia. He mentions him by name. In verse 6, he goes and says, Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. You see, within the first few verses, we've got ladies that's mentioned in this because women are so vital to the, men, the, to the work of God. The one thing they can't do, they're forbidden by God to do, is to preach and have authority in God's church. And that goes all the way back to the, the curse in the garden. When Paul says this in Timothy, and he says it in 1 Corinthians, he says it goes all the way back to the curse in the garden where man would have rule over the woman and we see the headship of God. God is the head over us and then the man is head over the woman because that's the hierarchy that God has set into place. And to twist that all up into, into, and flip it on its end is to distort and perverse the Word of God. Who was at the cross with, with, when no one else was there? The women were there. The first one at the tomb were there. They were women. Phoebe, a servant of God. Mary has done great things. There is wonderful women who do things in the kingdom of God. Don't ever forget it. That they are allowed to do amazing things by God. It's a grace of God. There's one right there. She's done so much for the kingdom of God. I thank God for that. This is what Paul's mentioning. He's saying this to them. But they cannot hold the office of the pulpit in God's church. God forbids it. But they can still do amazing things. He goes into verse 7. And he talks about this. And most early commentators will believe that these two were a married couple as well. And he says that they were kinsmen and his fellow prisoners. These people were prisoners with Paul. Somewhere along the line, in one of his prison stays, these two people were with him in prison. And he says, who are outstanding among the apostles, who were in Christ before me, long before Christ called me to himself. These people right here, they've been at it longer than I have. They, they, are, they have been with Christ, and Christ has rescued them before me. And now I spent time in prison for the cause of Christ with them. See this heart that Paul, he's reflecting on all these people that are in Rome that has helped him, that's been with him, that's risked his neck for them, who's done great things in this ministry. Paul wants to give them greetings. He goes on to talk about different ones. I want to draw your attention down to verse 13. 
This is a cool touch, I think, that Paul has, has put in here by the Holy Spirit. It says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. What does he mean by a choice man in the Lord? Why is Rufus here? Well, this is an amazing, amazing little side note in here. That if you go to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, that most commentators and scholars will agree that this Rufus had a very, very, quote-unquote, famous father. We find it in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15. We'll start in verse 16. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. He says, The soldiers took him away to the place that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Y'all remember what the crown of thorns, why it's so important? Because one of the first signs of the curse of fallen man was the thorns. And now Christ, who's coming to redeem His people from the curse, is wearing the crown of thorns. The King of all kings is taking that curse upon Himself to redeem His people. And they begin to acclaim, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating His head with a reed and spitting on Him and kneeling and bowing before Him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander, and Rufus, to bear his cross. Maybe this is the reason that Paul mentions this, that this Rufus that's in Rome, and his dad was Simon of Cyrene, who had carried the cross of Christ on that day. A choice man of God, chosen by God to be there that day. Do you think he was just there by accident? Do you think it was just Simon of Cyrene who just drew the, it just, you know, God's rolling dice in heaven, and there, Simon of Cyrene, hey you, take his cross. No. He was a choice man of God. And now he's saying, Rufus, maybe this is the dad who carried his cross. What an awesome, awesome little touch that we see in this letter. He mentions him, and he says, a choice man of God. What a story that would have been, right? Dad, tell me about that day. I was just standing there, seeing the Son of Man carrying his cross. And he couldn't do it anymore. And they made me carry it. Imagine that. What a story that was. What an honor that would have been. Would that have been an honor to carry the cross of Christ? I'm so glad you said that. Because you know what he tells us to do? Pick up our cross and carry it and follow him every day of our lives. What a story to tell. But how cool would it be for our kids to say, Daddy, tell me about that day. Son, I don't have that one day 
But ever since He saved me by His mercy and His grace, I've been trying to carry that cross. It wasn't it Simon of Cyrene? What an honor that He would call me from the foundation of the world to pick up His cross and my cross and follow Him. What an awesome thought, right? That's what we're called as Christians to do. It's heavy. It's hard. But that's what we as Christians are called to do. What an honor. Do you call it an honor? To carry your cross for Christ. You know, the cross was an instrument of death. And when you pick up the cross, you basically say, if death is the end, I'll carry it all the way there. That's what it means. Sacrificing you, sacrificing me, even if it means marching to your death. This is Rufus. Many believe that his dad was Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross that day. He goes on to list a little bit more. He tells everyone to greet uh, one another with a holy kiss. That's tradition and custom, uh, still prominent and overseas in some cultures. Um, it's a friendly greeting. Brotherly love is what he goes to uh, mean by that. And then Paul begins to turn the page just a little bit. And then he says this. He puts the church in Rome on guard. Do you remember the last few words that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy? Remember what it was? Preach the word. Nothing else matters. They're killing me for preaching the word. And here's my instruction to you, Timothy. They're coming for you too. Preach the word. It's the last thing he says. That's the ending of his letter. That's the just of it. Preach it. Don't compromise it. And now Paul begins to end this letter. And he wants the church in Rome to take notice. I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions, hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you've learned. Turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattery speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You know, Here's what Paul's saying. He told Timothy, preach the word. And he's telling the church at Rome, know the word and never compromise on the word. Because there will be people that come in, false agendas, false motives, for money, for their own self-gain. Don't let it happen for a second. Guard it at all cost. Because what you're guarding is the most sacred thing that you and I have in this world. It's the word of the living God. There's nothing to be compromised about here. Do you know the church is called this? Listen to what he tells us in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What does he call the household of God? What does he call the church? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. That's what the church is. 
foundation is Christ. And the job of the church is to hold firm, to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And there will be people that come in that will start to hammer away at the pillars, won't they? Start to just, just go at it. A little piece here, a little piece there. And if we're not careful, what do we do? Well, it's just a little piece. Do you know what happens when you get enough little pieces? The whole thing comes crumbling down. Paul says the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. What is the truth? He tells us that in John 17. 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is the truth. This is the inspired word of God. You have to know it to defend it. Amen? If you don't know the truth, then you fall for the lie. If you don't know the truth fully, then you can easily be tripped up because the, 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 the ploy of the devil is not to come in with his pitchfork, right? And his, his, his tail, that's not what he is. But he comes in with enough to make you think it's true. And if you're not careful, you'll fall. And the church is to hold to that truth. This is what he's telling them. Listen to what he says to the book, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 20. He's getting ready to leave the Ephesian elders. This is the last time that he's going to see these people. And listen to what Paul's instruction is. You're going to find a theme. When he closes out his message in Ro- to the Romans, what does he say? Know the truth. Hold on to the truth. The truth is everything. It's the Word of God. When he tells Timothy in his last letter, he says, what? Preach the Word. Listen to what he tells the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. This is the last time he will ever see these people because he knows he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be captured. He will eventually die. This is his last message. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 32. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Imagine that. Imagine just looking at your friends and being like, listen, you're never going to see me again. What do you mean? I have to go to Jerusalem. Okay. What's so bad about that? The Spirit told me I'm going to be imprisoned. Hardships await me. And they tried to stop him. What did Paul say? You're breaking my heart. I would rather die for Christ than to live without him. He says, you'll no longer see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He says, listen, there wasn't one thing I didn't cover. I covered it all, even the easy, the hard, the things you don't like. I covered it all. For I did not shrink back from declaring the whole purpose of of God. Listen to verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock. He's talking to the Ephesian elders here. You've got to be on guard, not only for yourselves, but also the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Yes, it was very, very personal, the blood that was shed that day. He purchased the church. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day of a period for three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See what he says? I'm going to leave. And the wolves are coming. That's what happens in the church of America, doesn't it? If we're not on guard, the wolves try to creep in. They try to distort the gospel. Paul says, I've preached it for three years to you. Be on guard. If there's anything worth defending and laying your life down for, it's this. Nothing else. It may cost you everything. You may lose everything you got. Paul says, be on guard. Doctrine matters. The truth matters. It's not negotiable. Is that a heart for God and His Word? This has to be a place that is a supportive pillar in truth. We have to defend the Word of God at all costs. This is the instruction he is giving to them. He goes down a little farther. Verse 19, he says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then he lists a few more. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius, and Jason, and Sospater, my kinsmen. And then we have this interesting verse, 22, that we speak in language that Paul, it is, Paul has been given this revelation from God. God has given Paul the wisdom. But in many of his letters, Paul did not physically write them down because he, most people, and I am in this group as well, believe that Paul had very bad vision. It's one of the things that, that haunted him. And there's some verses in here that I have, I've gotten down on your sheets that, that go along with that. Um, Galatians 4.15, he says, Where then the sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He's talking to the Galatians. He says, listen, you loved me so much at one time that you would have given your eyes for my eyes. And then he goes down a little bit later in the book of Galatians and he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So when, when Paul would write, it, he would a lot of times write the greetings. Paul, apostle of Christ. Paul, a servant of God. But then he would have what we would call a modern day secretary to help pin these words. So they're coming from God into the soul of Paul. And then Paul is citing these words. And here it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. It wasn't from him but because Paul's vision was bad that this man wrote the words that Paul was giving him. You stop and think about that just for a second. I have bad vision. If my contacts are out, I have to be about right here before I can see anything. Mind you that they didn't have the technology that we did. Can you imagine? Paul was blinded on his road to Damascus, wasn't he? What a light he saw glory of God. Can you imagine all the thousands of miles 
that he would travel? Maybe not being able to see clearly for one second. Can you imagine that? Thousands of miles, risking his life, teaching the things of God. And he says that these light afflictions can't compare to the weight of glory that's weighting me. I can't fathom what Paul went through, but he calls them light afflictions. And he calls them an honor, and by the grace of God. Interesting side note there, that the majority of this letter was spoken by Paul, but written by Tertius. And then he begins to wind it down. He mentions Gaius, host to me, the whole church, greets you, the city treasurer there, Cortius, the brother. And then in verse 24 through 27, here's how the Holy Spirit leads Paul to close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now verse 25. I love those first three words. Now to Him. That's our gospel, isn't it? Now to Him. How long do you think it took to write this letter? Not a day. Comes to the end of this. And Paul's heart is overwhelmed. At the, at the thought of everything that he's mentioned, everything that has been written down, he closes it by saying this. Now to Him. Isn't that it? Isn't that how you're a Christian? Now to Him? How do you persevere in the faith? Now to Him. How are you able to be forgiven? Now to Him. How can you walk through this life having any hope and any peace? You ready? Now to Him. Paul knows this. Because he's also the one who spoke Romans eleven thirty six. 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. It says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What does this word establish mean? It means to make stable, to make firm, to stand firm. To fix, to strengthen, to render constant, to confirm. And he says, who's able to make you do that? How many times have you tried to make yourself firm? To make yourself established in your own works. What does he say? Not to you. Not to me, Paul. No, 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 no. Not to him who's able to establish you. You just, we just read it when, in the last part there of Acts 20 when he's given this warning to the, Ephesians elder, to the Ephesian elders. He says, And now I commend you into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance. That's the establishment. Why are you a Christian? Why do you persevere? Why will you enter the kingdom of God? Now to him who is able to establish you. This word that we get from establish in the meaning, we can take this all the way back to Matthew chapter 7. And we can talk about the, 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 the parable of the foundations. Do you remember that parable where it says, those who hear my words and to put them into practice, what are they like? 
like the wise man who was built on the rock, established and firm. And when the winds came, what happened? It stood the test of time. That's what he's saying here. It is him who establishes you. It is he who is the rock. It is he who gives you the words. It is he who puts the fear of God in you so that you don't turn away. It is he. At the end of this letter, Paul says, don't ever for a second think it's you. It is him. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, talking about being established. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He gave you the Spirit of the Godhead in you as a pledge of your inheritance in that kingdom. And He's the one who establishes you. It says He establishes you and He gives you the Spirit. They go hand in hand. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before God. How can you be holy before God? Now to Him. Isn't that the message all through Romans? You can't, God can. Not you, Him. This is why Paul winds us down. So that He may establish your hearts. It's God. Without blame and holiness before our God. That's the righteousness of Christ that we wear. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. He gets all the glory. And he always will. He says this, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. What could that be? What is this mystery that we have learned about so much in this book? The mystery of the gospel. That the Gentiles would be brought into this tree. Remember we talked about that in Romans 11. That we were the wild olive tree that was useless and nothing, and they would take it, and they would get, there was no use for it. But here we have the true tree, the olive tree of God. And instead of cutting those, those wasteful plants, those wasteful, for good nothing, olive branches, or those wild olive branches and trees, instead of cutting them out and tossing them, what does he do? He brings them back to the tree, and he grafts them in picks them up. Not here. That's wrong. He picks them up from their death, (laughs) their spiritual death. He picks them up and he brings them down. It's the mystery of the gospel that Gentiles can have salvation. You've heard that a lot in the book of Romans because it is so important. It is why you're here. If you don't like the mystery of the gospel and you understand why you're here, Simple as that. Paul goes back to it again. Why would he go back to it? Who's he the minister to? Primarily, the uh, Gentiles. He says it was hidden a long time ago, but now it's been revealed with Christ. Two verses left. But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the command of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. That nations is what? The Gentile nations. It's to all the Gentile people that He have 
called, just like it's to all the Israel, the ethnic Israel that he's called. The nations represent the Gentiles. And now through this work of Christ, it's been given to all. And that's, an ex- I mean, that's the same thing he mentions in Romans 1.5 about the obedience of faith to the Gentiles. He starts that in the first chapter here in his letter to the Romans, and he ends it that way. You see, Paul is concluding that it's by God that you're saved. It is through God that you are kept. He gets all the glory. It's all about Him. Oh, you Gentiles who are reading it, it's been the mystery of the gospel that has brought you here. From the called, it's from the Jew and the Gentile. What good news. We're down to one verse. You know, I was thinking... As we come to the end of this book, I remember standing around the fire one night when we started this. And I remember saying, this book is controversial. And I said, all people don't like it. I said, but it can change your life. Remember that? We were outside around the fire. And I look back through the book of Romans. I've seen people and their lives literally changed. Life changing stuff. I've seen people, because I've been there that have been in church for years, weep like a baby when they for the first time begin to understand what justification truly is. I've been there. I've been there, and I know the power of God that has worked in this study through the book of Romans. I've seen families changed. I've seen individuals changed. I've seen our church changed. I've seen heartaches. I've seen persecution. Is there anything we haven't seen through this book? Has it changed you? Has it changed your family? Has it brought you closer to God? Do you see things a little differently now? Paul comes to the close of this, and as he begins to remind himself of all the things that he's covered in this letter. All the deep theological truths. Do you know what is his response? Doxology. Because theology, what does it produce? Doxology. Doxology is where we get the word glory. And if you remember that his intrinsic glory is his glory that is never changing. It's immutable. God's glory and who He is and the radiance of His glory is permanent and it will never change. And as a result of His intrinsic glory, we are to ascribe to Him glory. The ascribed glory is what we give Him as a result of His intrinsic glory. And this is what Paul's doing as he comes to this. He comes to the close and he says, Now to Him. Every time that you can, you can go through multiple places in this letter, and when Paul is overwhelmed, what does he say? Oh, the depths of the riches of the glory of God. 
Oh, who can understand these things? When he begins to think about the deep, weighty things of God, his heart bursts into doxology. Because if you know who God is, and you know who you are, then you only have one appropriate response. True worship. I want you to think about what Romans has meant to you. Where you're at now is where you were before. I want you to think about those things and how would you end your letter? I think Paul ends it perfectly. When you think about it all, when you think about before the foundation of the world, before anything, he wrote your name. He would call you because you're not worthy of it. But it's a straight act of mercy that this sovereign God, before the foundation of the world, would give to His people. And then the Son would go lay His life down for those people. That's why He says, call Him Jesus. He'll save His people from their sins. And then the Holy Spirit would draw you back. Remember when we talked about salvation is a past, a present, a continuing, and then a future? Your salvation began at the foundation of the world. When he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's where your, that's where your salvation began. But when the fullness of time had come, he came into this world to live a perfect life, to impute that righteousness to you and me, to justify you, to continue sanctify you, to give you the faith to believe and then the faith to continue that this God would do this. When you think about all of this, I think Paul sums it up perfectly. Sola de gloria. You know what that means? To God alone be the glory. Where else would you go? Who else could get the glory for this whole work but God alone? Paul says this, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. What an ending. To God alone be the glory. For everything you've heard in this book, for who he is, and for the mercy he's given you, sola de gloria. Not me, not you. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, that's our heart's prayer today. that you would receive all the glory. Lord, we are hopeless and we are helpless without you. God, and without your mercy, we have no hope. 
Thank you for this study of Romans. God, thank you for opening our eyes and our souls to the truths of your word. God, these are truths to die on. These are truths to, to, to fight for to the last breath we have because they're your words and they're your gospel. I pray that you would give us as individuals and as a church the strength and the courage and the boldness to, to understand today that we are to stand firm. We are to guard your truths at all costs because the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, the support of the truth. God, when we think about our salvation, when we think about your mercy, and we think about your grace, to you alone be the glory. Amen.